We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. danger becomes when we want to look at unique ways that God operates in the scripture and adopt a pattern and say to ourselves, this is the way God worked in this occasion, thus he must work this way in every occasion, every time for all people. That simply is not a good way to interpret scripture. God does unique things. He often repeats those unique things, but he is not obligated to do what he did once or several times every single time for every person the same way. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Daniel. Have you ever experienced a situation where you thought God would act in a specific way and he didn't? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he warns you to not place God in a box. Oftentimes, it can be easy to see how God responds in the Bible and to expect that same response in your own life. However, God sometimes doesn't respond in the same way. Pastor Gary encourages you to not let this trouble you. God is always in the business of doing new things. Trust in Him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, as he begins his message, Lessons from the Lion's Den. Chapter 6 of Daniel. While you're finding your way there, just a little bit of commentary before we read here from chapter 6 of Daniel. We come now to one of the most famous and familiar stories in all of the Bible. I'm sure that for people who don't even claim to be Christians and people who don't necessarily even go to church, if, if you were to ask whether or not they are familiar with this story, they probably would be. And this, of course, is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. The year of this story is sometime shortly after 539 B.C. The location of this story is the same location as all of the book of Daniel. We're in Babylon, ancient Babylon, along the Euphrates River in what is modern Iraq. But the Babylonian Empire now has transitioned to the Medo-Persian Empire. And King Darius the Mede and King Cyrus the Persian joined forces to defeat the Babylonian Empire, and that was our study last week at the end of chapter 5. Babylon, the city, 
which was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, is still now the capital city of the Medo-Persian Empire. And the palace that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar once occupied is now being occupied by Darius, the king, who was basically appointed as a governor by Cyrus the king in this joint effort of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel is still serving there in the palace. He hasn't left. Daniel, by the time we get here to chapter 6, is about 83 years of age. And he has been faithfully serving one king after another for the past more than 65 years. Because remember, he was taken captive as a prisoner of war along with thousands of other Jews living in Jerusalem at the time by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 B.C. Actually, Daniel and his friends were taken earlier in 606 B.C. And then they were deported to Babylon where Daniel with some of his friends were trained and raised up to be advisors to the king. And so Daniel has been serving King Nebuchadnezzar. He's been serving King Belshazzar. And now the Babylonian Empire is gone. It's been replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius the king is on the throne, occupying the same palace in Babylon. And Daniel is still serving him as well as an advisor. 65 years, more than, he's been faithful to serve the various kings where God has placed him. But Daniel was most faithful to King God because Daniel was always most loyal and faithful to the God of the Bible, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that faithfulness to God is about to be tested in probably the biggest way here in chapter 6. At the same time, that said, Daniel has probably never been more prepared for this test as he is here in chapter 6 because he's been serving God for a lifetime. And a lifetime of faithfulness to God has steeled him for this moment. So I'm going to read here from chapter 6, about half of the chapter. I'm going to read down through verse 17, if you'll follow along with me in your Bibles. Daniel 6, starting at verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss." Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, Not, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God." So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. 
And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. And then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually... He will deliver you. And then a stone was brought out and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not change. Well, as I said at the beginning of this study, this is probably one of the more familiar and famous stories in all of the Bible. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with this story, I'm just going to give you the spoiler alert right at the beginning. So I'm sorry to spoil the whole story for you. But Daniel is rescued by God and is unharmed. That's the way the story ends. And I give you the story up front because sometimes we we read this story and we think of it as just something that is good for children's storybooks, but you know, it really doesn't have much relevance for us. It's a really fun story. Uh, Some may not even believe that it actually happened, and people often dismiss this as just a fable. But it's, it's not a fable at all, and it needs to be read and understood for what it is. And that is a miraculous, amazing intervention of God's power to rescue a man who would otherwise have suffered a very terrible death. I mean, I think we can all agree that uh, dying by being mauled by lions is probably a significantly terrible death. It ranks right up there. I don't know what your list is of the terrible ways that you think about, I don't want to die. But, you know, for me, it's things like, you know, being eaten by a shark, dying in an airplane crash, and being beaten alive by a clown. Those are the kind of things <laughs> that, uh, that scare me. And so, you know, when, when I think about being mauled by a lion, that certainly ranks right up there. Now, I want to get a few things out of the way before we dissect this story together. And I first want to talk about some of the liberal theologians and, th- and how they dismiss this story because they don't accept the miraculous part of what happened here. And so you can read different commentaries from different liberal theologians who acknowledge the outcome, the outcome of which is Daniel comes out of this whole thing unscathed, unharmed, but absent the miraculous, how can we then explain it? And so there are three typical liberal theological views on this story. And here's the first one. Okay, I'm not making this up. Here's the first one. It must have been that the lions were not really hungry. I mean, can you really believe that? The lions were not really hungry. They already had a good meal right before they threw Daniel in, and they just weren't hungry. I mean, please, if you have a dog at home, you know that any animal is always hungry all the time. So that's the first thing they say. Another thing that liberal theologians say about this story is that Daniel must have hid himself in some crevice in the cave and therefore escaped being mauled by the lions. So I want you to picture dropping an 83-year-old man into a lion's den, and then he picks himself up off the floor, and he scurries. Look at here, there's a crevice. I'm just going to... 
sucker, Mufasa. You know, I mean, no. That's ridiculous. Third thing that liberal theologians say about this story is that Daniel must have hid himself on the floor under straw. It gets worse, doesn't it? Listen, I don't know about you. I don't have the nose of a lion, but I can tell you what. If somebody throws a stake into a room and hides it under some straw, I can find it. I'm telling you right now. I guarantee you I could find it. So those are the views of some liberal theologians. But like much of the Bible, you have to be willing to accept the miraculous to accept this story. If you don't accept the miraculous, then you're going to just kind of dismiss this as some fable best read in a children's storybook. But it's much more than that. Now, before we talk about the important points we can learn from this story, I want to first say how we should not interpret this story. The danger in preaching this story is to say that Daniel represents you and me, and the lion's den represents all of our trials, and that God comes along and rescues us from all of our trials. I think when it is preached from that angle that God always rescues us from difficulties unharmed, it not only does a disservice to the text, but it does a disservice to all of us. God can and does rescue people from trials. In fact, Peter said in 2 Peter 2.9 in the ESV, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God can and does rescue us from trials, but that does not mean that God rescues us from every trial every time. This is a unique story with a miraculous outcome for the glory of God. And God's unique ways, the unique ways that God operates, is not necessarily a statement of a pattern, but it is always a statement of a principle. And the danger becomes when we want to look at unique ways that God operates in the Scripture and adopt a pattern and say to ourselves, this is the way God worked in this occasion, thus he must work this way in every occasion, every time for all people. That simply is not a good way to interpret Scripture. God does unique things. He often repeats those unique things, but he is not obligated to do what he did once or several times, every single time, for every person, the same way. And it's a danger to us to go around reading this story thinking, well, when I get into my lion's den, God's going to always rescue me. The fact of the matter is that this story is certainly a story of principle, that in principle, God can and does deliver us from our trials. But even if we end up having to go through it, God is with us in it. And that's important to recognize in this story that God is still faithful to us regardless of the outcome because he is not obligated to work the same way every time for every person because he's God. And so it is dangerous for us to always draw a direct parallel from every story we read in the Bible and say, it worked like this for Daniel, it's always going to work like this way for us. I think what's important for us to see is in principle the way that God operates, that he is always faithful to us no matter what the outcome. In Daniel's case, the outcome was he came through it completely unharmed. I wish life worked out that way in every circumstance. It just simply doesn't. That is no reflection on the faithfulness of God or the lack of it. It is simply a reality of the world in which we live, and God is faithful no matter what in all circumstances at all times. So we trust him 
no matter what we're going through, no matter what the outcome. Having said all that, I think there are some important principles that we can glean from this story based on the four main characters of this story. And the four main characters of this story are the instigators, that is to say, those people who are behind this plot to trap Daniel. Then, of course, we have Daniel himself in this story. We have King Darius in this story. And, of course, we see God in this story. So let's review it and let's talk about how each of these four characters present something important for us to learn. When we first open this story here in chapter 6, we find King Darius implementing a flow chart to help administrate the the Medo-Persian Empire. And so it tells us in the opening verses of chapter 6 that Darius then chooses three governors, and under these three governors are 120 satraps, or some of your translations might say princes. Some of your translations instead of governors says administrators. And among these three governors, Daniel is one. And he's selected as one of the three. So you have this flow chart where Darius is king. His direct reports are three governors. Underneath these three governors are 120 satraps. Between this whole structure, they govern and oversee the Medo-Persian Empire. Well, Daniel has been chosen as one of the three governors at the top of the flow chart. And the Bible tells us, I'll give you the verse, in verse 3, that Darius had it in his heart to make Daniel over the whole kingdom. And so apparently Darius maybe spoke about it, maybe talked about what he was thinking because word got out that Darius was interested in redrawing the flow chart and making Darius at the top, Daniel underneath him, then two of the governors, then the rest of the satraps. Now, when this news starts to leak, can you imagine what the co-workers think, all right, in the office? They just have heard that you have been selected, at least this is the talk. The talk is you've been selected to be promoted over all the rest of them. How do you think they like that? How do you think the rest of the co-workers like that? They didn't like it. And so what we find happening here is some of the satraps and these other two governors, obviously besides Daniel, approach Darius and they float this idea. And here's the idea they come up with. They're like, Darius, listen, Darius, 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 Darius. We have an idea for you. We think that you ought to be God for 30 days. What do you think about that? And Darius at first is like, well, you know, tell me more. Now, this is actually not something that is that uncommon back in the day. It was something called the divinity of the kings. In Egypt, they practiced this. Pharaoh was actually seen as divine. In the Roman Empire, the latter part of the Roman Empire, they they also practiced this with Caesar Augustus, Augustus, meaning the divine one. So they would deify the leaders. So these satraps and governors come up to Darius and they say, we have a good idea, not that uncommon in our world. How about you become king, uh, rather God, for 30 days, and here's how it'll work. We just happen to have drawn up this document because we thought you might like the idea. And if you sign it, then you will be God for 30 days. And so that's what they present to him, that if anyone prays to any other God or gives honor to any other God besides you, Darius, during that 30-day period then they should be put to death, thrown into the lion's den. And Darius reads over the document. He says, I kind of like you. I mean, you wouldn't want to be God for 30 days. You know what I think is so pitiful, though? That not, not only does Darius say, yeah, I want to be God for 30 days, but that he only did it for 30 days. I mean, I mean seriously, if you're that messed up that you want to be God for 30 days, why stop at 30 days? Anyway, he signs the document, puts it in writing, and he signs the thing. And the Persian Empire operated under a different government system than did the Babylonian Empire before them. The Babylonian Empire before them was an absolute monarchy, meaning that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were 
authoritative despots. They could do whatever they wanted. It was an authoritative monarchy. The Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, operated under a constitutional monarchy. It was a different form of government. Darius could not just do whatever he wanted. When he signed something into law, even he could not undo it. These guys knew that. They knew that when Darius signed something into law, it would be law and it would be permanent. And it was their way of trying to entrap Daniel. It was clearly and solely an attempt to trap Daniel. They were not content that Daniel should be promoted. They didn't like that Daniel had favor with Darius. But these guys weren't simply interested in having this 83-year-old Jewish guy just kind of relegated to some retirement community and draw Social Security. No, they wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. And so they present this document to the king, and the king signs it into law. What was the motivation behind these instigators in even coming up with this plan? Well, it leads us to point number one on our list, lessons from the lion's den, the instigator's jealousy. Plain and simple, it was good old-fashioned jealousy. They were jealous. They were jealous that they got passed over. They were jealous that someone else got something better than they. They were jealous of of Daniel's position. They were jealous of Daniel's wisdom. They were jealous about everything related to this guy. The move that King Darius was about to make by placing Daniel in charge of the kingdom sparked a firestorm of jealousy in the hearts of these other officials. And these other governors and officials turned out to be no friend of Daniel at all because they were just a bunch of insecure, jealous, backstabbing co-workers. That's what it amounted to. They were jealous of an 83-year-old Jewish man, and they wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. Why? Because jealousy has a very destructive nature to it. By the way, jealousy's twin is envy, and it's very difficult, even when you look at the definition of the two words, to distinguish between the two. Basically, envy is wanting what someone else has. It's like covetousness, which it's a sin, And jealousy is resenting what someone else has, feeling like they shouldn't get that. They don't deserve that. And jealousy then took root in the heart of these guys, and they put this plan forward. And notice again the destructive nature of jealousy, because again, they weren't simply content in having Daniel go away. They wanted Daniel dead, because jealousy does some pretty irrational things. There are some people in jail today because they acted on jealousy. There have been some marriages destroyed because of jealousy. There have been families divided because of jealousy. There have been businesses that have folded because of jealousy. There have been people murdered because of jealousy. Jealousy is a very destructive emotion, not only to the one who possesses it, but also to those who are the target of it. It's terrible. And the Bible warns about jealousy over and over again as something we must get rid of in our lives. I'll read a few cases. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14 in the ESV, it says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Notice there in Romans 13, Paul distinguishes between some acts of the sinful nature, talks about sexual immorality, he talks about a drunkenness, he talks about quarreling, and he adds jealousy with that group. 
And he says, now, this is not to be something that characterizes God's people because he says, on the contrary, we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So what he's saying is things like jealousy, that's all part of the flesh. Thanks for joining us today on Cornerstone Connection to study the book of Daniel. This man of faith lived in a time where Israel wasn't a nation. They didn't even live in their own homeland. Yet people like Daniel and his friends continued to serve the Lord, even when it wasn't widely accepted. They faced persecution, even to the point of death, yet they remained firmly planted in the truth of God's Word. Well, today you may not be facing a lion's den or a furnace if you profess your trust in Christ. You may indeed face opposition. God is still calling you to stand strong and to tell the truth, helping others to see the light. Your Creator is with you and will be your strength through whatever comes your way. Please know that we're praying for you here at Cornerstone Connection. If there's something specific we could be lifting up to the Lord, please get in touch with us. Our number is 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. Do you have a church family? If not, we'd love to step into that role for you. You're invited to be part of our weekly services here at Cornerstone Chapel. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to get the latest information on service times, and regulations so that you can join us safely, either in person or online. You can also visit our Facebook page for information. You'll find a link at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.